Good afternoon, everybody. I want to I want to start by getting us to do a little exercise. Imagine that you're a young child. I'm going to put some music on to help set the scene. So, this is um some nice young children music. You're a young child. The first child of your parents. The only child of your parents. Mum and Dad buy you ice cream, get you anything you want. They spoil you, protect you, love you, cherish you. They say, you are the one we love. You are the apple of our eye. You are the most important one in the whole world. And then one day, you get dropped off at Grandma's. Mum and Dad disappear for 24 hours. And then Grandma and Grandpa drive you to a hospital and you find out that you're not the only one anymore. There's another baby now. Someone else Mum and Dad love too. You're not the only one anymore. This is what it felt like to be an Israelite and find out that God was into Gentiles as well. The Jewish people weren't ready to hear that God's love extended beyond them. And Jonah, the Hebrew prophet, certainly wasn't either. So I want to call this talk Selfish Faith in an Other Loving God. All right, that's enough of that. But um, you're welcome. We're going, to meet, uh, the, we're going to meet the ship today, not the fish. We'll meet the fish next week, but we're going to meet the ship. But first we meet Jonah. And Jonah was a prophet of God. He was a legitimate prophet, a passionate prophet. He loved his country. In 2 Kings, it actually says that, that Jonah, son of Amittai from Gath-Hefer, he prophesied that the boundaries of Israel would expand. They'd be restored. So Jonah is used to bringing good news to the people of God. But Jonah isn't ready for the word of the Lord this time because God is bringing something unexpected. The story begins, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Now if you're an Israelite, you don't want to be going anywhere near Nineveh to preach anything. Nineveh was one of the great cities of the Assyrian Empire. And at times, um, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and these guys were brutal enemies of Israel. You can go to museums or look up ancient history, and, and you'll see that the Assyrian Empire was one of the most savagely violent ever. They would um, capture their enemies, and there's stories of them cutting off the legs, both legs of an enemy, and cutting off one arm, and then they would shake the hands of their, their enemy as they died. It's like brutal, disgusting. Sorry if that was too much. Israel had been exiled in the past by the Assyrians. They'd been captured, plundered, women and children stolen and raped. And Israel's prayers, if you read the Psalms, actually a lot of Israel's prayers are that God would save us from these sorts of people, even that God would punish and destroy these sorts of people. 
other prophets around the time of Jonah had actually prophesied that, that God would judge the Assyrians and even Nineveh specifically. A prophet like Nahum has something about Nineveh in, in his prophecy. But Jonah is called to preach a prophetic message which is a warning to these people. He's called by God to go to Nineveh. This would be like a, a Jewish preacher in 1943 going into to Germany to preach. God called him to go to Nineveh and preach against them, against the city. But against the city so that they might be warned, that they might repent and that God could relent. This whole story wrestles with the tension of mercy and judgment. That God is a God of love, but because his love is just, he hates evil and death. He's not, he's not an anything-goes God. He's, he's not the mum from Mean Girls, if you remember her. Because of his love, he is a God of love, but because of his love, he hates evil and judges evil, such as that committed by the Assyrians and the Ninevites. He's got no time for that, the old meme goes. Ain't nobody got time for that. Yet his mercy runs so deep that he's prepared to relent in his judgment if they repent. That'll come later in, in, in the story in a couple of weeks. But right now we see that, that God calls Jonah to do this and Jonah runs the other way. He goes in the opposite direction. It says he, instead of going to Nineveh, he goes to the end of the world. Literally the end of the known world at this time was a place called Tarshish. It's on the very outskirts of, of the known world, uh, probably a coastal city in Spain. Think like, um, what's that one where you, you go and have good food? San Sebastian, something like that. He's running away from God all the way to Tarshish because he doesn't want to face up to what God has asked him. He'd rather die or he'd rather dine if he makes it to Tarshish. It seems that he's probably running away out of some sort of allegiance to Israel, um, out, of, out, out of national self-interest. As an Israelite, he just doesn't, doesn't want anything to do with this. Perhaps fear as well would be fair enough to say. But his zeal for the people of God and what he knows means he runs away from God because he couldn't comprehend that this might be part of God's plan. I think we do this more than, than we like to admit, using God to run away from God. Like we know what we know, we like what we're familiar with, and often we hold on to our preferences, even our Christian preferences, more tightly than we, we hold on to God. Our God is a God of mercy and justice. And we must be prepared to meet him in that mysterious tension, even when it doesn't make perfect sense. That he's a God of justice, he's a God of mercy, that he's a God of judgment and compassion, that he loves people and yet hates evil. We must be prepared to listen and obey even when 
our personal or religiously informed preferences might incline us to run the other way or go where it's comfortable rather than where God's calling us. Our God is a God of mysterious mercy married with perfect justice. He judges and forgives. If it feels beyond us, probably because it is. He's the Lord and he's in charge. And he's in charge of circumstances, he's in charge of the culture, and he's in charge of the seas. And that's what we see next in the story. Jonah boards a ship to flee from God, and yet God is right there. You can't escape him. Jonah tries to run away, but God is there sending a wind on the sea, and this storm is serious. We don't see a heap of, I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't see a heap of sea crossings or ships or storms in the Old Testament. But Jonah, in many ways, is a a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the New Testament. um, A few few of the synoptic gospel writers, they, they speak about Jonah explicitly. Jesus mentioned Jonah explicitly. And so Jonah crossing the sea actually foreshadows another one who's going to cross seas and do it a lot more successfully. But in the biblical imagination, in the, in the Jewish understanding, the seas are a place of chaos that can't be controlled beyond anyone's control. And yet we see that the Lord God is even in control over the seas and the storms. Every pagan sailor, look with me at, at verse 5 and 6. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And yet nothing happens. Because only one God is in control of the sea. And this storm is the consequence of one man's sin who cannot escape. You can run away, but you can't escape Yahweh. And so the sailors, they wake up Jonah They ask him who he is, where he's from, what's his deal. They're peppering him with questions, about five questions in a row. They know he's running away from God. And after they cast lots, they begin to realize that this situation is legit. They're like, Jonah, you follow the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land and you're running away from him? I think... I think there's a connection here. Do something. Like this is your this is your fault, mate. And he says, throw me into the sea. Finally, he gets a grip and takes responsibility. He's been sleeping while the pagans have been praying. He's complacent, doesn't fear God enough. But finally, he recognizes that he has to take responsibility for his own sin and be the sacrifice. So like I said, Jonah Jonah foreshadows Jesus in so many ways. Of course, Jesus was the sacrifice not for his own sins, but the sins of another. But finally, after resisting the idea of throwing him overboard, the pagan sailors, they cry out to the Lord. They say, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, Lord. You have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. It's like immediately. It's definitely connected. 
And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. These pagan sailors, it seems they convert because they saw the power of God at work. They cried out to their own gods, nothing happened. And then this happens. Jonah's running away from God. These men who are far from God are drawn close to him through this incident. They see and acknowledge that the Lord does as he pleases. They call him Lord. It says in the, in the original text, the, the Hebrew name, Yahweh, they, they address him as Lord. They offer sacrifices and vows to him. Isn't the mercy of God just incredible? Jonah, that Jonah would run away from God, God would send a storm on Jonah, and now, through all this, the sailors are saved. And the magnificent mercy of God is so amazing that Jonah's even saved as well. It's not the end of the story for Jonah. Next week we meet the fish. But for now, and just notice in the story, the pagan sailors, they showed up Jonah every time. God loves pagans. God loves Gentiles. God loves people who are far from him and he desires to draw them close. And Jonah missed that. Look back with me at At verse 8 and 9, they're peppering him with questions. Who are you? Where do you come from? What's your country? Who's responsible for this? They pepper him with questions and the first thing Jonah mentions is not Yahweh the Lord his God, but his ethnicity. He says, I am a Hebrew. Jonah was too consumed with the things that mattered to him, that he couldn't obey this mysteriously merciful God. He was too consumed with his, his ethnic identity, his passion for the people of God. Who God chose, who God loved, who God had prophesied judgment on, who God did want to punish, and yet because of his mercy was, was willing to relent if they'd repent. But Jonah had his own understanding, his own heart. He wanted to control God. He wanted God to operate the way he wanted. That's why I think we have to be so careful that we don't have a selfish faith in an other-loving God. We must be so careful as Christians that we don't get caught up into loving the bits about God that we love, that we become hard-hearted to the other dimensions of him. He's bigger than we think. We must be so careful as Christians that we don't let our passion for righteousness become self-righteousness and, and forget grace and pursue God and godliness out of our own strength and zeal. We must be so careful as Christians not to hate others because we love our brothers and our sisters. It's just too cliche. It's just too, it's just too common of humans to end up in tribes and hate the other. It's just too cliche. 
We've been saved from that sort of shenanigans. We mustn't hate the unrighteous. We mustn't hate the unrighteous because we love righteousness. We mustn't hate the ungodly because we love God. God loves all humans. And so we're to do the same. Jesus said, love your enemies. We should be just as quick to to denounce evil and violence against Muslims as we are against Christians. We should call out sin in the church and in ourselves more quickly than we do in the world and in others. We should care for, we should stand up for, we should pray for more than our own kin. Our vision of God must be so big that our world never becomes so small. Too small. Because, let's be honest, it's easy, it's easy to have a vision of God that's just big enough to keep the interests of ourselves, maybe our family and friends, a few other people at the forefront. But the Lord of heaven and earth has many children. We are not only children. We somehow are the apple of his eye and yet we're not the only ones. His, his, his character and his love is too big for us to have a faith that promotes self-interest, whether it's national self-interest, economic self-interest, any self-interest. His, his character and love is too big for that. I was, listening, I was listening to an interview yesterday with a, a pop star that I, I quite like, but I won't mention who it is, um, on BBC Radio 1 with Zane Lowe. It's, it's a good, good interview. And, and they were talking about society and they, were, and they were saying when things are going well for them, they sort of seem to think things are going well for the rest of the world. And when things were not going well for them, things were not going well in the rest of the world. And I was like, it's a bit of a small perspective to decide that how things are in the world is just completely conditional on how things are going for me. It's, it's God's common grace. You know, he has particular grace for those he's chosen and called and who have, have drawn near to him and his, his bloodshed on the cross has uh, enacted forgiveness and healing. But he also has common grace for the world. And, and his common grace means that the common good should be a high value for us. If we're looking out for ourselves, we've missed the magnitude of God, which means our church, our church has to be on about something bigger than, than just us. Our prayer lives have to be about more than just me. Our hospitality, our homes, our finances, even our food, should serve more than just those who are are close to us and close to God. That's the challenge of serving an other loving God. But there's a real gift to this as well. The gift is that the other loving God loves you. That if you've ever been an outsider, if you've ever been othered, considered the other, considered outside. God loves you. He's pronounced judgment on racism. He's pronounced judgment on religious pride and prejudice. 
God loves those who are othered and who are called other so much. He loves you. We swim in these complex waters of of serving a God who judges sin and forgives sinners at the same time. Which can at times, if we're honest, be hard to accept because there's evil that we we sometimes just want it to be judged. But ultimately this is good news because we've all fallen short. Whether we're like Jonah with a a vision of God which is too small and self-interested, whether we're like the, the pagan sailors who have turned to our own devices, our skills, even our idols, and they've come up short, God saves. Jesus was a better Jonah. Jesus threw himself into the storm of sin and sacrifice to sacrifice so that we might be saved. Unlike Jonah, Jesus didn't deserve it. Jesus always did the will of the Father. He says, I always do what I see my Father doing. He never ran away from God. He never decided God's mysterious ways were too too big for him. Instead, he volunteered himself to be thrown into the storm so that justice might be served, judgment on evil proclaimed. See, that's what happens on the cross. Justice is served and, and on the cross, God says, all the evil in the world is worthy of punishment. Yet at the same time, mercy peace and forgiveness reign. Mercy, peace and forgiveness reign from the throne and mercy, peace and forgiveness reign down on us from above. So would we surrender our will, our desires and our lives to the merciful and just God of love? He's bigger than we think. He's sometimes surprising He is often unexpected. He is always other-loving. And as Mr. Beaver said of Aslan to Lucy, he isn't safe, but he is good, and he is the king. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And if you want, you can put your hands out. The posture of a Christian is one of receiving grace. Just take a few deep breaths. You just say, thank you, God, for your mysterious, magnificent will that we can't always comprehend. Thank you that you're bigger than we think. That your love stretches further than we imagine. That when people tell us we're not worthy of love, you say, no, that is not true. You are loved. And when we say that others aren't worthy of love, you say, that's not true either. They are loved. Would we know your love for for ourselves, for each other and for the others that we have never even dared 
to think that God might have favour and forgiveness for. Thank you that even when we don't understand you, you understand us.